please do join me now in taking out your Bibles and turning with me to Acts chapter 20. As we turn now to the Word of God, let's turn to the author of the Word. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, would you make us captives? Captive to your Word. Captive to you, Father. And indeed, in being so captured, and constrained, we are truly free, free to live, to love you, and to love our neighbor. And so be pleased, Father, to inform us through your word, and by the powerful work of your spirit, would you transform us to be more and more like our Savior, Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. What's your immediate reaction when you hear these words? You're being charged with. Again, these words, you are being charged with. Now, is this a bad thing? Or a good thing? Is it something to run from or to run toward? Is it a discouraging word or an encouraging word? You're being charged with. Well, it depends. Now, I know that for some, it depends sounds like the absence of convictions. The inability to somehow distinguish right from wrong. But of course, context is key, is it not? Because I think the rest of what you would hear after that initial statement would provide the answer, the key to understanding what is meant. So, if you hear those words, you're being charged with, the handcuffs may come on next. But you also, if you hear those words you are charged with, you may now understand you've got a job to do. You've got a calling to fulfill. Now, in May, uh, this church gets the the great opportunity to serve our whole presbytery by hosting a, a meeting, our spring meeting. And almost every meeting, not everyone, but almost, there's a charge given. Someone is charged. It might be a candidate for the gospel ministry who is charged. It might be someone who is licensed to preach the gospel who receives a charge. And then it might be someone who completes their ordination exams and he receives a charge. And it's often, it often comes from one of Paul's letters to Timothy, full of charges from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. Now, back in April 2016, uh, some of us were there when this church was organized as a separate and particular congregation of the PCA, and and charges were given that day during the service, Uh, a charge to the pastor, a charge to the congregation, and a charge to the newly ordained and installed elders. 
Now, in our text today, we have a charge being given to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Now, where are we? We're in Acts chapter 20, but we're in the port of Miletus for a brief stop. And then Paul and his apostolic band of traveling missionaries will go headed toward Jerusalem. And we're in the middle of a farewell speech. And there, as I mentioned last week, three major speeches that Paul gives in Acts. There's a speech to the Jews in um, Antioch of Pisidia in chapter 13. There's a major speech of Paul to the Gentiles in Athens in, in Acts 17. And now it's a speech to Christians, to, to, uh, to men who have identified themselves as followers of Jesus. Last week in part one, we looked at verses 18 through 27, um, and we saw um, uh, that it was Paul's, in a word, his autobiography. It's, it's a defense. Remember, he defended himself and his ministry. It, it's full of the indicative statements, statements. Um, and today, we're going to be looking at part two, verses 28 through 38, and it's, it's his charge to the Ephesian elders. It's the imperative. It's commands. So last week, we saw Paul defend himself and his ministry, and he said, in so many words, remember me, remember who I am, remember who I came to do, and remember the message I was given to proclaim. And we saw toward the end that Paul is talking about himself a lot, not really to draw attention to himself, but interestingly to draw attention of his listeners then and his readers now to another, to one man who said, remember me. Remember who I am. Remember what I came to do and remember my call to you. Of course, that one man is none other than Jesus Christ. For the next few minutes, we're going to unpack and explore this second part of Paul's farewell speech to the elders for the purpose of growing in our understanding and application of both the informing and transforming word of God. And here in this speech, we will see Paul doing several things. He will issue commands, he will set forth a commendation, and he will pray in collaboration with the elders. So join me as I read verses 28 through 38. Paul had just said, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown 
you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So let's start off by looking at the commands. This part of the farewell speech of commands. And who is Paul speaking to? Um, Elders. But in particular, the word being used is overseers. Uh, He doesn't use the word elders here, which is presbyteros, which we get Presbyterian from, but rather overseers, uh, episkopos, bishop, where we get the word episcopal. Overseers. Men, as we read, who have been made overseers by the Holy Spirit. In other words, these aren't self-made men, self-appointed men, men who have been called and are being equipped to serve as overseers. And these overseers, we are told in what we read, Paul tells them to pay careful attention to yourselves And to all the flock, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Uh, Pay careful attention. Keep watch. Take heed. And and, and what does this mean? Well, it, it, it means open eyes. Open your eyes and look in the mirror and look through the window. They are to guard both themselves and the congregation. It's it's. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. It's the, it's the standard announcement you get on the, um, in the airplane as it's getting ready to taxi and take off, right? In the event of a sudden, what, depressurization, uh, oxygen mask will automatically descend from the overhead. And for those of you traveling with small children, uh, put your mask on you first and then your child. It's the lifeguard who is instructed to know how to swim, be equipped to swim, and actually be equipped to somewhat fight off a drowning swimmer who, if you're not careful, will take you down with them. Pay careful attention, first of all, to you, yourselves. And it's in the plural. Look out for one another among the elders. And together, take care of the church. Now, why? Why? He says in verse 29 that I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Because Paul speaks of threats both outside the church and inside the church. And so overseers need to be equipped, above all else, to recognize the threat. Now, there are other passages, 1 Peter 5 and others, that talk about the work of the shepherd, the work of the elder. But here, 
It's the emphasis on overseer, to recognize the threat, to, to see the threat, to, to respond appropriately to the threat. Now, he speaks of fierce wolves that will come in, and there are others that rise up. Now, wolves that look like wolves are one thing, but wolves that look like sheep are another. And Jesus in Matthew 5 says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Here Paul is instructing the elders to see, to discern, to distinguish, to look carefully. You know, Paul echoes in his letter to the Corinthian church something that Jesus said In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds, Paul writes. These predators coming in from the outside and predators rising up from the inside twist things, primarily in the context of what Paul is talking about. They twist the gospel of the grace of Christ. So what is the purpose of their oversight? Well, it's to care for. And that's where the word to shepherd is, to care for, to shepherd Uh, The biblical metaphors, we heard it earlier, sheep and shepherds, to tend a flock, to lead a flock, to pasture and so to feed it. Uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel have, have, uh, have depictions of bad shepherds, shepherds that scatter and not gather, that exploit rather than feed and protect. Not only does Paul here say to the elders, take care, take care of, care for, shepherd. That's what Peter says directly as well. And what is the object of their oversight? What's the object of their oversight? The church of God. It's it's not my church. It's not their church. But it's God's church. It's cumbersome. And I catch myself at times, you know, you're talking with a bunch of pastors and you say, well, my church. And then I stop myself and wait a minute. My church? How about the church I am called to serve? Paul says that the church is not the elder's church. The church is God's church and he modifies it, which he obtained with his own blood. He purchased it, he bought it, he owns it. And this is a remarkable way in that it acknowledges that the blood of Christ, because this is the atonement, this is the cross of Christ, This is, and for her life, he died. This is where the blood of Christ is equated with the blood of God. With this expression, we see the costliness of the death. The immense cost. The the atonement, the, the humiliation of Jesus who for us and for our salvation 
Not just death on the cross, but the humiliation of living in a sinful and fallen world. The costliness of the death just shows us the magnitude, the immensity of God's love for his people, his church. So the first command is pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to to care for the church of God, which has been bought, purchased at such a high price. It's so valuable because of that. But there's another command, and we go down to verse 31. Therefore, be alert. Be alert. Be on the lookout for threats coming in from the outside, from wolves that look like wolves. And be alert and be be on the lookout for threats coming from the inside, wolves that look like sheep. The threats Paul faces that he writes, in, that we see in Acts, that we see in his letters, the threats that Paul faces are all assaults on the gospel of the grace of God. Why? Why would the gospel be a threat to anybody? Because all of us are born with pride. Pride is in our DNA and and, and it manifests itself in the combination of ignorance and arrogance. And the gospel, the message of the gospel of the grace of God runs smack into our pride. It humbles us to the core because the good news of the gospel says in so many words, You can't do it. No matter how best you try, your efforts, your cleanliness, your obedience, you can't do it. The gospel and the gospel alone says, I have done it for you. And that is radical. That is threatening to every single one of us who still are holding on to vestiges of our pride. There's got to be another way. And so all the threats are somehow, some way related to, to weakening, lessening, twisting, compromising the gospel. Somehow these threats say that Jesus is not sufficient. What, who Jesus is and, and, and what he did is just not enough. That's where all the threats are oriented. And so he says, be, on, be alert so that you can see clearly. And that's what Paul had been doing for three years, right? I did not cease night or day. Paul is using a little bit of hyperbole there, right? Night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Tears. Do you see that in that there's a depth of love for the apostle and the people, the church planter and the church, the pastor and the elders? Oh, what depths of love. With tears, he's warning, he's encouraging. 
So there's two commands already. We see the command to pay careful attention. We see the command, be alert. But also there's a third command, and it's down in verse 35. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What's the command? Help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. And Paul here is using himself again as a model. Here in this part, he's actually talking about himself again. Because he wants to address not only that spiritual needs need to be addressed, but also physical needs. And this is where we see the the, the ministry of elders and deacons um, representing Christ in his ministries of both rule and service. Remember, Jesus the King is both shepherd, think elder, and servant, think deacon. Paul is not addressing uh, diaconal ministry in the church, but he's saying to these elders, these leaders, hey, yes, you've got to be aware of spiritual needs, but look at our Lord Jesus who went around doing good. You've got to be helping physical needs as well. Three primary commands we see. It's a high calling. It's an impossible calling. Uh, I mean, Paul in 2 Corinthians, that letter where he's defending his, his ministry primarily, he says, who is sufficient for these things? But he goes on in chapter 3 to say, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And so in this farewell speech, Paul not only commands, but we will see that he commends the elders to the one and only source of both their calling and their competence. Because located between these commands, or located between commands two and three, is a commendation. We see it in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul here is going away. It's time for his departure from the church in Ephesus to head to Jerusalem. And he is placing them in to the hands of God when he says, I commend you to God. Remember Allstate Insurance, right? 1950, they came up with a slogan, you're in good hands. Paul is is putting them on deposit with God. He's, He's placing them in the care of God. Now, of course, God has been caring for them all along, but but Paul wants to commend them to God. I mean, on the cross, Jesus says this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because this could be translated, he commits them to God and the word of his grace. Paul knows that he himself is not sufficient to care for them, to to protect them. He, He commends them to God and to the word of his grace. 
the word of his grace, it shows up again. Verse 32. Look back with me at verse 24. What was Paul's calling? He wanted to finish his course. What was the ministry that Paul had received? Was the ministry that Paul had been given, was it a ministry to to fight for legislation to clean up the Roman Empire? I don't think so. Was it to fight to replace the current Roman emperor with another? I don't think so. Was it to fight and win a cultural war? I don't think so. Rather, his calling was to tell the truth. And what was the truth we read in verse 24? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And we looked at that in some detail last week as we unpacked the 3G network of gospel, grace, and God. So by commending them to God and to the word of his grace, Paul is saying the word of God is central to your ministry. And what is central to the word of God? Grace. Because God's word teaches salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so it's not only the content of the word of God, but it's the attitude and the tone of grace that serves to protect the church. And notice how Paul continues to describe this word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Because it is the gospel of Christ that has the innate power to establish the elders and to strengthen the elders in their faith. Um, How has Paul characterized the word of God? It's the word of his grace. It's not accidental. It's not accidental. And so all the threats that Paul is having to deal with in his ministry, the threats that he is preparing and equipping the elders to deal with, it's assaults on grace. Because grace, again, is threatening. And notice also he ties in the corporate nature of the church within which these believers have their place. It's... it's, the inheritance that everyone who trusts Jesus has. Not just you elders, but everyone. So it's the unity of the church, the guaranteed inheritance that the church, that every believer has. Now the speech has ended. Paul has commanded and he has commended. The time for talk is over. It's time for action. I can't tell you how many movies in years past I've seen The time for talking is over. It's time to take action. Well, what is the action that is being taken? Um, Paul's finished his speech and listened to Luke's description. We heard it once. Let's listen to it again. And when he had said these things, that's verse 36, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him because being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. That's Luke's description of the scene. 
And notice he says he prayed with them all. There's the idea of plurality of elders with all of them. Paul among several. And if you read that quickly, you may think, oh yeah, Paul the apostle knelt down with everybody and he prayed for them. No doubt he prayed for them. But notice the text, he prayed with them. He prayed with them. Even though Luke doesn't detail it, the elders are praying as well. Now when I was putting together this rough outline for how to look at this text, I thought the word co-laboring was, was a good one. They were co-laboring together in prayer. But my spell check, automatic change the word, made it collaborating. And that's not too bad either, is it? They were collaborating. The co-laborers in the ministry of the gospel are collaborating together. They're collaborating in prayer. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we don't have time to go there, but Paul says, you know the hardships we had in Asia? We, it, it, was, it was rough, like Asia, like Ephesus and the surrounding area. We, it was so hard and so difficult, we despaired of life itself. But you know what? We, we think God did that so that we would see that we would, are not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And the next thing Paul says is this, hey, pray for us. Pray for us. So I guarantee based on the context of the word of God, that, that the elders are praying with and for Paul as well. Because Paul ain't too proud to beg, to ask for prayer. And notice the description, there was much weeping on the part of all. They being sorrowful most of all. There's anguish. Now, wait a minute. The Christians are weeping and being sorrowful? Why? Don't they know that they're secure in Christ? Don't they know they've got a guaranteed inheritance? Why weeping? Why sorrow? <laughs> you know why? It's because they loved each other. They loved each other. There was a depth of love between Paul and the elders and the elders and Paul that could only express itself not in stoic prose, but in a description literally of they fell on his neck kissing him. Weeping, being sorrowful. Why? Because in a way, this is death. Paul is going to be separated from them. They are afraid and he thinks, you'll never see me again. They love each other. They know the gospel. And yet, the depth of the love at the separation of this relationship physically brings forth weeping and sorrow. My friends, do you have that kind of depth of love with people? We see a description of it. Well, during this brief stop in the port of Miletus, Paul speaks to the Ephesians. 
the elders one last time, but this is not the last time the church in Ephesus is spoken to. Because you know, Paul later writes a letter to the church, the church in Ephesus and really all the churches around Ephesus, and he writes to Timothy a couple of letters. And in so doing, Paul tells Timothy about some things going on in Ephesus that you need to deal with. And one of those things was false teachers. And he was instructing Timothy how to deal with false teachers, foolish controversies, arguments, how to protect the church. So yeah, Paul looked ahead and saw that this was going to happen and it indeed happened. So Paul himself writes a letter. The first three chapters are the indicative and the last three chapters are the imperative to instruct and encourage the church and we are the recipients of such a beautiful, needed letter, the letter to the Ephesians. But you know what? And we're wrapping up to the end here. There's another letter to the church in Ephesus. If you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Because here, Jesus directs the Apostle John to write a letter to the church in Ephesus. I'll just read a couple of verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, he begins. And in that, Jesus has a charge. Look at verse 4 of Revelation 2. Jesus has a charge. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Most every commentator, in fact all commentators that I took a look at, said that this is not love directed to God, but rather love directed horizontally to neighbor, to fellow Christians. You've abandoned the horizontal love you had at first. To be sure, we only love because God first loved us, as John writes in one of his letters. And because of that charge, what Jesus had against the church, he also had a different kind of charge. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. The bottom line of the letter to the church in Ephesus from Jesus is this. Where's the love? Where's the love? That's what's absent. Where's the love? I mean, false teachers must have gotten in who have attacked the gospel of the grace of God and and, and because of that, there's not much love in the church. Because if people are aware that they've been saved by grace, not by what they do, then there's going to be love among people. 
Why? Because you're in the same condition. You're in the same boat. You've been all rescued by the same person. And so in its absence, what does Jesus say? Remember, repent, and rework. In other words, love not only in words, but love in deeds. Jesus and Paul were thinking the same thing. Because in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, we read this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the works of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Why are the elders there? Why are the pastors, the teachers? To build up the body of Christ. And later on, he wraps up in verse 16 and says, From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in Love. In love. So as Paul commands, as he commends, and as he collaborates, it's all for the purpose of building the church up in love. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great love that you have for us in Christ. We thank you for the love that is displayed at the cross where your rightful justice and your extravagant mercy meet. Oh, Father, we thank you that because of your love, you can be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, the very best elder can only do so much. All elders, all pastors are weak and frail, finite men who are absolutely dependent upon you. And so, Father, would you be pleased to use the elders in this church and the elders in all of your churches to lead people to the good shepherd, the one who alone knows exactly how to care so well for his people. So Father, be pleased to lead us into abundant pastures where you can feed us, protect us, and that we can lie down and rest beside still waters. We thank you, Father, that Jesus is the good shepherd who has come, that we would have life. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.